eye for an eye. That was the type of world that Jesus stepped into in the first century. When he stepped onto the pages of history, the culture of his day, the religious culture of his day, the communities of his day, the nation of his day, embraced this idea of an eye for an eye. Eye for an eye was an ethic that said, if you hurt me, I will hurt you. You take what is mine and I will take what is yours. If you cheat me, I will cheat you. And if you decide to be my enemy rather than my friend, if you decide to be my enemy rather than my friend, I am probably not going to help you. I am most certainly not going to bless you, but I will pray for you. I will pray for you the way the psalmist prayed concerning his enemy. When the psalmist said, appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty and may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. Yes, that means what it, you think it means. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be a wandering beggar. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. May the iniquities of his father be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sin always remain before the Lord that he may blot out their name from the earth in your name. Amen. A prayer of King David, a man after God's own heart. See, that's how you prayed in a system where it's eye for an eye. I think that prayer may have went beyond an eye for an eye, but that's how you pray in a system that says eye for an eye. Eye for an eye is an ethic of proportional response. What you do to me, I have the right to do to you in just proportion. And this was all found in the Bible. This was all part of the law. This was the word of God. This was, you know, the words of Moses to the nation of Israel through God. Exodus 21, if you want to read about it later. And there God said, it's a lie for a life. It's an eye for an eye. It's a tooth for a tooth. It's a hand for a hand. It's a foot for a foot. It's burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Eye for an eye was a system that guaranteed that justice would be equitable that justice would be served. And so under the idea and under the ethic of eye for an eye, the motto was basically this, treat your neighbor as your neighbor has treated you. Because that's the way eye for an eye works. Treat your neighbor the way that your neighbor has treated you. Because eye for an eye ensured the one who had done wrong would pay for the wrong they had done. And so that's the only way that it could work. That's what eye for an eye was all about. It ensured that the one who had done wrong would pay for the wrong that they had done because everybody wanted the one who had done wrong to pay for the wrong that they had done. And then Jesus showed up on the planet. And Jesus said, you've heard this thing where your neighbor hurts you and you hurt your neighbor. Jesus said, I'm here to offer a stunning reversal of everything that you have heard and everything that you've been told and everything that you have read in the chapters and verses of the Old Testament. 
Jesus taught the scriptures, the Old Testament, and it was the only testament at that particular point. Jesus taught the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, the Jewish scriptures. He taught the scriptures to a group of people who knew the scripture and had been taught the scriptures all of their life. And Jesus showed up onto the pages of history to offer a better interpretation of the old authority. Because now Jesus is showing up and he is claiming to be the new authority and he is claiming to have authority over the Old Testament scriptures because now he claims to know all the parts of the scripture, but unlike the religious establishment of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law, Jesus, unlike them, knew the point of those scriptures. Because God doesn't care about how many parts of the scripture we know if in knowing the parts we miss the point of the scriptures themselves. And so he showed up and he began to teach in a brand new way. He says, you've misunderstood and I'm here to correct your misunderstanding. And so Jesus, he said this, he says, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Exodus 21, word of the Lord spoken to Moses to the nation of Israel. He says, you've been told this all of your life, but then Jesus said, but I tell you, that's a big deal. Because now Jesus is claiming authority over the scriptures of the Old Testament. He is claiming to have a better interpretation than what the people had previously been told. This was a big deal. Ultimately, they're going to kill him for this. This is going to be one of the reasons they put Jesus to death. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. You've heard this, but I'm going to tell you something different. Do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, I'm a pastor. I'm a professional. You probably don't have times nor the interest to read commentaries about what people say about the scripture, but, but that's part of my job. And one of the entertaining things about reading commentaries is the hoops that people will jump through on this verse to make it say something that we don't want it to say. Because if Jesus is actually meaning what he said, it is a bit troubling, it's a bit clear, it's a bit demanding. Matter of fact, we think that all the problematic texts are in the Old Testament, that the really hard things are in the Old Testament. That is until we read the New Testament. And we discover that a lot of our problem, truth be told, is not with the Old Testament, it is not with Paul, it is not with James, it is not with John, it is not with Jude, it is not with Peter, but it's with Jesus. Because what Jesus says is very clear, but unfortunately also very demanding. If you're anything like me, if he's going to be demanding, I would rather him be unclear. <laughs> but to be demanding and clear also is a, is a thing altogether. He says, if somebody slaps you on the cheek, then you turn the other cheek. And we don't like that. That goes against our intuition. That goes against what we treat our, you know, treat, you know teach our children. That, that goes against you know, everything that we think we know about how the world's supposed to be ran. He says, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, go ahead and give them your coat as well. And it's like, oh, I wonder what he really means by that. We, is he in metaphor? Is, is this some type of, what, what does he mean? What if he means what he's saying? What, what if that is the case? And he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles, because in those days, the occupying force, the enemy at hand, right? Jesus had used to hear, you know, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I'm here to tell you to love your enemy. And perhaps the most visible enemy in that day was the occupying force of the Romans. And there was a law in those days that if a Roman soldier walked up to you and said, hey, carry my equipment for one mile, you had to do that or it was punishable by law. Jesus said, if the infidel walks up to you, if the occupying force of the Romans walk up to you, and they ask you to carry their equipment one mile, go ahead and without them even asking you, you go two miles. 
And everybody's like, he says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, I'm going to tell you something altogether different. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. Or maybe a better translation would be so that you can prove that you are children of your father in heaven. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not even like the tax collectors who are already doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than the others? Do not even the pagans do this? He says, it's easy to love those who look like you and think like you. It's easy to love those who are closest to you. But the real test of love is to love those who don't think like you, who don't look like you, who have hurt you, who have wounded you, who grate against every last nerve that you have in your being. He says, that's the test of love. Love is not put to the test when you love people who think like you and look like you and behave like you and believe like you. Love is tested when you have to love those who don't look like you, don't think like you, don't believe like you, who grate on your nerves, and even those who have hurt you and wounded you. That is when love is put to the test. So Jesus, here's what Jesus taught. Love your enemies and you will love your friends. Be faithful to love your enemies and you will be faithful to love. Jesus believed that if we learn to love our enemy, if we love to learn the one who hurt us and wounded us, who opposes us, who stands in conflict against us, that if we could learn to love our enemy, we in doing so learn to love. So Jesus challenges us to love our enemies. And everybody who was in the crowd that day for this sermon, they were as uncomfortable with the implications of what Jesus was saying as what we are uncomfortable concerning the implications of what Jesus said. Because they knew that if we are now supposed to love our enemy, the only way that we can love our enemy is to forgive our enemy. The only way that we can truly love our enemies is to truly forgive our enemies. And the reason that Jesus taught this was perhaps because Jesus understood that the greatest expression of love is forgiveness. Where there is love, there will be forgiveness. And where there is forgiveness, there will be love. And that's why Jesus said, so be perfect. Not meaning without mistake or without error because he knew that we would never be perfect in this life. But he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. In other words, Jesus is saying, strive to be as much like your heavenly father as possible. If you are a son or a daughter of God, if you have a personal relationship with your heavenly father, it is your responsibility to reflect God's character, to reflect God's likeness into every relationship that you have. You are an image bearer of God. I am an image bearer of God. And what that means is that I reflect the image of God, who God is and what God is like. I reflect that into every relationship of my life as a husband, as a wife, as a mother, as a father, as a brother, as a sister, as a friend, as a citizen. I reflect the image of God into every context of life. But here's the thing. Jesus was speaking to a group of people who misunderstood God. 
They thought that God was one who evened out the score. They thought that God was one who kept records of good and bad and who sought to level the score, to level the playing field. They thought that God was a God who got even against those who did wrong. And because of it, that was the type of God they reflected into their world. Their understanding of God fueled the image that they bore of God into their relationships. They thought that God was an eye for an eye God. But Jesus said, no, your heavenly father is a God who loves his enemies. Your heavenly father, my heavenly father is a God who wants to bless his enemy, who wants to save his enemies. Jesus said, now that I'm telling you what your heavenly father is really like, I want you to go reflect that image of God into every area of your life. Because eye for an eye, that's no longer a thing. If you follow me, it's now grace for ungrace. If someone throws ungrace at you, you throw grace back at them. If somebody does wrong to you, you do right by them. If someone hurts you, you're willing to help them. If someone pains you, then you're willing to pray for them. This is a whole new thing. And so it was uncomfortable for, for them, it was uncomfortable for us because eye for an eye, it just seems natural. It just seems natural. It's intuitive to our primal instincts. Eye for an eye, well, of course, that's justice. Justice needs to be served. Eye for an eye is the best way to serve up justice. But Jesus said, even though it seems unfair to forgive an injustice, I want you to forgive anyway. It's gonna seem unfair for you and unfair for me to forgive an injustice, but I want you to do the unfair thing and forgive anyway. It is a better way. But the part that we don't like to talk about is it is a harder way to live. He says, I want you to forgive. And I don't want you as one of my followers to seek to make the one who has done wrong pay for the wrong that they have done. When the people in your life, they do wrong, I don't want you to be the type of person that seeks to make them pay for the wrong that they have done. And so Jesus, if he's not clear enough already, he begins to teach his followers about how to pray, right? You know, everybody wants to know how to pray. And he says, hey, when you pray, pray our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And right in the middle of teaching us, his followers, how to pray, Jesus throws this thing in. He says, when you pray, say, and forgive us our debts, as, and as is so clear, as it demanding. He says, as we also have forgiven our debtors. In other words, Jesus said, I want you to be reminded every time you pray that you stand in need of forgiveness and that you stand in need of forgiving. Jesus said, I don't want a single one of my followers to ask me to forgive them without them also being willing to forgive the people that have done wrong to them. He says, if you're gonna approach your heavenly father and ask your heavenly father to forgive you for the wrong that you've committed against him, then you should have already forgiven those who have committed wrong against you. He says, because forgiving and loving is at the heart of what it means to have a relationship with God. He says, if you don't forgive, I can't forgive. 
Maybe a better translation of when Jesus says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. Maybe a better translation is this, that the evidence of the fact that you and I have been forgiven is our willingness to actually forgive other people. He says, so I want everyone who follows me to stand understanding, knowing that they stand in need of forgiveness, but they also stand in need of forgiving. This is Jesus, to make it already more clear than it is. He says, so in everything, now I'm not a Hebrew scholar, I'm not a Greek scholar, I'm not an English scholar, but I will tell you that everything means everything. So in everything, it means what you don't want it to mean. It's the circumstance you don't want it to apply to. So in everything, even that, due to others, and others there is the person you don't want it to apply to. Others there is the person that you could never apply this concerning. So in everything due to others, what you would have them do for you. And Jesus said, for this sums up the law and the prophets. He says, you have heard in the past, treat your neighbor as your neighbor has treated you. But I'm telling you, there is a new way, a better way, a more demanding way. And it is treat your neighbor the way that you want to be treated. You treat your neighbor the way that you want to be treated. Now, can you imagine if this is the only verse Christians tried to live by? Can you imagine if this is the only verse we'd like decided we were gonna be able to quote and try to obey? Can you imagine that if every Christian all over the world woke up tomorrow and said, you know what? I am going to live my life beginning today to do for my neighbor what I would want my neighbor to do for me. Do you know how different the world would be? Do you know how different marriages would be? Do you know how different communities would be? How different politics would be? How different the nation would be? How different the world would be? If this was the only verse we tried to live by, Jesus said, I want you to treat your neighbor the way that you would want to be treated by your neighbor. And so the implication is, why would you forgive your neighbor? Even when your neighbor has decided to be your enemy, why would you do that? Because you would want to be forgiven. Why would I love my neighbor? Because you want to be loved by your neighbor. Why would you bless them? Because you would want to be blessed. And so Jesus, he just, he says this and, and nobody likes it and nobody, this is not everybody getting warm and fuzzies. This is not just something that we quote. Do you understand how difficult this is? Of course you do. That's why you're so quiet. This is difficult. This is clear. This is demanding. There's not a lot of wiggle room in this. So Jesus taught this stuff all the time. And one day after he's teaching something like this, Peter walks up to him and says, okay, let me get this right. I think, I think I've got it. So if somebody does me wrong, I should forgive them up to, wait for it, Jesus, seven times. And Peter thought he was slick because the rabbis taught you should only, you know, forgive your friends three times, but he was like doubling it, adding one, the number of God, seven, right? I should forgive them seven times. And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. And it's not that Jesus wants us to figure out the math because some of us, we can't do that in our heads, but <laughs> Jesus not wanting us to figure out the math. The point of what Jesus is saying is, if you're gonna follow me, you're gonna give up your right to keep score. 
If you're going to follow me, you're not going to keep a record of how many times you've forgiven. And it may not be that you forgive different things 70 times 7. It may mean that you have to be willing to forgive the same thing 70 times 7. If you're going to follow me, Jesus says, you have lost the right to ever say, this is the last time I will forgive you. Because here's what Jesus thought. This is what Jesus taught. Forgiven people forgive people. Jesus says, you're going to follow me, you're forgiven. But forgiven people forgive people. And this became the ethic of Jesus' followers. So Jesus, he died, he was buried, he was resurrected from the dead. A few weeks later, he ascended back to the Father. The church is started. One of the early leaders in the church is a guy by the name of Paul. He's going to write nearly half of the New Testament. He's going to take what Jesus taught. He's going to take the fact that Jesus said, the greatest thing you can ever do is to love and forgive. He's going to take all that teaching of Jesus and he is going to expound on it, he's going to expand it, and he's going to tease it out, and he's going to give us practical application after practical application, and thus we have the letters of Paul and half the New Testament. So when Paul thinks about this idea of love and forgiveness versus unlove and unforgiveness, he understood that Jesus taught, if you're going to walk in my path, if you're going to follow after me, it is a path of love and forgiveness. If you find yourself unforgiving, you have unloved and you are no longer following after me. You have stopped following me because my way is forgiveness and my way is love. And so Paul, he, he took all of this and he said, you know what? It, it, it occurs to me that when someone has hurt you and someone has wounded you and you refuse to let it go, when you hold on to it and when you keep it close and you put it down there somewhere deep inside and you refuse to get rid of it, he says, by refusing to give forgiveness, you are holding on to some very deadly things that ultimately are gonna destroy you. They're gonna rob you of life, they're gonna rob you of joy. And so here's what Paul did. He wrote letters to different Christians about basically the same things. In one of his letters to a group of Christians in Ephesus, we call it the letter to the Ephesians, here's what he said on the idea of when you refuse to give forgiveness, you're holding on to something, and what you hold on to is ugly. He says, you need to get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, and every form of malice. Because when you refuse to give forgiveness, when you refuse to let it go, that's what you're holding on to. You're holding on to bitterness. You know what bitterness is? We know it when we see it, but bitterness is resentment that comes from rehearsing old hurts over and over and over and over again. You just rehearse it. You think about it, you replay it, you rehearse it, you think about it, you replay it, and you experience it all over again. And all of a sudden, you don't know, but that little seed of hurt has become a root of bitterness. You know what it does? It sours people. It stifles their joy. It gives them a disposition of irritability, right? You've met some people before and they're just bitter people and you say, why are they like that? perhaps because at the heart of it all, there was a hurt, unresolved, unforgiven hurt. And that hurt has made them harsh. We see the harshness, but we don't see the hurt that gave birth to the harshness. He says, you hold on to bitterness. You hold on to rage and anger, anger right below the surface. And then someone says the smallest thing to you, and it's rage. 
It's the husband who flies off at his wife over the smallest thing. It's the wife who gets ticked off at her husband about the smallest thing. It's the mom or the dad who's always yelling at their kids over the smallest thing. It's people yelling at people, losing control over the smallest thing. Where does that come from? He says it comes from anger and rage. It comes from refusing to let some stuff go. And oftentimes the people who experience the rage against them, they're not even the ones who are the cause of it. It goes back years. It goes back months. It goes back weeks. And it leads to slander to where you can't say anything good about anybody. And especially some people. You demean them. Perhaps even abuse them with your words. And he says, with every form of malice. Malice is when you enjoy the thought of the person that hurt you being hurt. It's the idea that the one who hurt you gets hurt and you like it. He says, that's who you become when you hold on to unforgiveness. That's what you drag into your marriage. That's what you drag into parenting. That's what you drag to the office. That's what you drag into the car. That's what you drag everywhere you go. It's ugly, it's deadly, and it absolutely will affect your life physically, spiritually, and emotionally. Paul says, so you need to let it go. Let it go. I have a question. If that's all we're left with, what Paul says there, bitterness, rage, anger, slander, malice, who ends up paying the price? Who ends up in emotional prison? Who ends up carrying the weight? The answer is we do. We end up paying. We end up in prison. We end up carrying the weight of it all. And Paul says, there is a better way. It is more demanding, but it is more rewarding. And he would say this, he says, therefore, as God's chosen people, as sons and daughters of a heavenly father, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves, let it go, get rid of the rage, the anger, the bitterness, the slander, the malice, get rid of all of that and put on this, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Compassion is seeing people the way that Jesus sees people. Well, the question should be then, how did Jesus see people? And it says that Jesus saw people as sheep without a shepherd. He saw them broken and harassed. Ultimately, Jesus saw people doing things they couldn't help but do. Paul says a better way, a more demanding way, a more rewarding way is to put on compassion and to see even your enemies through eyes of compassion, to see that they are broke like you. And before God, both of you have fallen short of the glory of God. Does it matter if you fell a little closer to the mark than they did? In an eye for an eye world, yes it does. In a world where it's not eye for an eye, it doesn't matter who fell the shortest. The point is, we all fell short. And it doesn't matter if you seem to be more broke than I am, we are both so broke we cannot put ourselves back together again without the intervention of a savior. He says, so what if we saw even our enemies and those who hurt us and wounded us through the eyes of compassion to say, you know what? That was horrible and that was painful 
And I hated every moment that that happened to me. It was terrible. But you know what? I get it. That's what sin does. That's what brokenness does. He says, put on compassion, kindness, that you leak grace, that you treat people better than they treated you, even your enemies, that you are soft around the edges, you're kind. You have humility, you realize you're a sinner too. You stand in need of forgiveness as well. And before God, you and them need a savior. There is no moral high ground. He says, put on gentleness, that you deal tenderly with even your enemy and patience, that you have a long fuse, you're slow to anger, and maybe you even think twice before you're ever willing to speak once. Paul said, this is what we learned from Jesus. This is how Jesus decided to deal with sinners like us. And now we should behave that way towards one another. He says, so bear with, put up with, bear with each other, bear with one another and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive and then talk to me, what's this word? As. We lost all wiggle room with that word. We lost all interpretive freedom with that word. We lost all exceptions, all exemptions, all but what if, but if you knew my story, we lost it all right there because he says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. He says, as Christ has dealt with you, so you must, as a follower of me, deal with other people as I have dealt with you. And you know how he dealt with me? He wasn't cold, but he was warm. He wasn't angry with me, he was compassionate with me. He was patient and gracious and gentle. How many times in the course of my life have I went to God and said, God, I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. God, if you will only, I will never do this again. Only to do it again. But when I sinned against him, when I wounded him, when I broke his heart because sin was breaking my life, he was compassionate towards me. He was gentle towards me. He was patient towards me. He did not give me the silent treatment. He did not give me the cold shoulder. He always had his arms open wide, loving me and forgiving me. When I did wrong, he did not seek to make me pay for the wrong that I had done. But instead, you know what Jesus said? What he said to me and what he says to you? He said, because I love you, I'm not going to make you pay for the wrong that you have done. I'm gonna absorb the hurt. I'm gonna absorb the pain and I will pay the cost of the wrong that you did against me because I refuse to make you pay for the wrong that you have done. So Jesus took our wrong and he died. He that knew no sin became sin for us that we might be right with God and dare we say right with people. That we learn from Jesus that forgiving 
It is difficult, it is demanding, but it is rewarding. And from Jesus, if I'm gonna forgive as the Lord has forgiven me, I gotta realize one of the greatest misconceptions about forgiveness is this, that forgiveness means forgetting. Forgiveness means forgetting. And some of you think that you can't forgive because you'll never forget. We even sing songs about the forgiveness of God, being like he forgot our sin. But when the scriptures and when the songs that we sing talk about that God has forgotten our sin, it is the best language that we can put our hands on to communicate just how great God's forgiveness is. It is though he forgot our sins, even though he hasn't. It's as though there's no record of our sin, though there is. God is omnipotent, he is omniscient, he does not get amnesia about our sin. If God got amnesia about our sin when we, you know, ask him to forgive us, every time that we preached on David and Bathsheba, God would be up in heaven looking at David like, you did what? I forgot all about that. No, God doesn't forget our sin. He forgives it in spite of the fact he'll never forget it. And he forgives it in such a way it is though he forgot it, though he didn't. He never holds it against us. He never throws it up in our face. He never ever holds a grudge concerning the wrong that we have done. He has released us from that debt. He paid for that debt. And he never brings it back up. You see, forgiveness ensures that the one who has done wrong will not have to pay for the wrong they have done. That's what Jesus did for you, and that's what Jesus did for me. No record, no grudge. And even though Jesus still bears the wound of the hurt that we caused him, even though he still bears the wound, he has forgiven us, and he does not hold it against us. What seemed unforgivable in Christ became forgivable who seemed unlovable in Christ became lovable. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you're gonna forget about it. You won't. It doesn't mean that you'll be reconciled. Perhaps you can't. Forgiveness doesn't mean that it's gonna get rid of the pain because the wounds will still be there. Forgiving is not excusing their behavior. It's trusting though that God is a righteous and holy judge who will one day make sure that justice is fulfilled. Forgiveness does not correct the past, but it does better your future. When you let it go, today gets better. When you let it go, tomorrow gets better. And he says, and over all of these things, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Because forgiving is loving richly those who have loved you poorly. One of my heroes, dating back to middle school, is a woman by the name of Corey Ten Boom. This is a picture of Corey Ten Boom's family. This is her, this is her father, her mother, her sister, and her brother. Corey Ten Boom, this is a picture of her in her, in her mid-40s. And she lived to be around 92 or 93, and this was a picture of her later in life. And if you don't know anything about her, she was Dutch and she was the daughter of a watchmaker. Her family were followers of Jesus. On May 5th, 1940, the German Luftwaffe began bombing the Netherlands. 
In just five days, the Dutch people surrendered. Soon after, the occupying force of the Nazis came to the land and they began to gather up Jewish men and women. And in just a few days time, they gathered up 100,000 Jewish Dutch people. And they were taking them to the extermination camps of the Nazis. Corrie ten Boom, her father, sister and brother as Christians could not stand by and watch such an act of injustice. So they decided to get involved and they decided to begin to hide Jewish people in their homes. At one particular point in her own words, as she tells the story, she had about a hundred people in her home that were Jewish, men and women and boys and girls in closets and under the bed and between the walls and anywhere that anyone could hide. She tells the stories of how her path would cross German soldiers who were not entirely committed to Adolf Hitler. And when she sensed the opportunity, she shared the good news of Jesus with them. And they would give their hearts, many of them, to Jesus. And they would give to her their soldier's uniform. She would put those in her closet. And then the young Jewish boys in her home When they heard that there was orphanages all around town with Jewish babies in them, that the Nazis were going to put those babies to death, those young Jewish boys would put on those German uniforms and they would walk down the street with no one knowing who they were or what they were doing and they would go rescue those Jewish babies and save them. That's who she was. That's what she did. One day, A man came to her and says, my wife has been captured by the German police for hiding Jewish people. They want money and they want a lot of it and this is how much it's gonna cost to get her out. Corey Tim Boom says, I don't have the money right now but let me talk to my friends and let's see what we can do. And she raised the amount of money the man said he needed to get his wife free and she gave him every last penny, every last dime but it was all a fabricated story. His wife had not been arrested. He went away and he pocketed the money and he called the Gestapo and says, Corey Ten Boom and her family hide Jews. So the German police came to their house and arrested her father, her brother, and her sister. They would be sent to concentration camps. Her father would die. Betsy, her sister, and Corey Ten Boom They would go to the concentration camp and as would happen to so many women, they were made to strip bare, walk in front of the soldiers, be inspected, be demeaned, be abused, endure unspeakable horrors. Betsy would die in a few months, no longer being able to take the suffering. Their brother would be released, but he would be sick and he would die a few weeks later. Corey Ten Boom was released on an error. She was released. But before she was released, while she was still in prison, there was someone from her hometown that was arrested. And when that person got there, they said, Corey, do you know who betrayed you? And she said, no, tell me who betrayed me. She said, do you remember the guy who said that my wife has been arrested and if we give him the money that they would let her go? And she goes, yeah, I remember. She said, it was him who betrayed us. And now he himself is in prison as well. She found out where he was. 
wrote a letter, had it smuggled to him, along with the New Testament that she'd been able to smuggle into the concentration camp herself. She underlined key passages in the New Testament to tell him about the love of Jesus. And she wrote in the letter, I know what you did, but I forgive you and I love you. I love you because Christ has forgiven me. And in time, he wrote her back. And he had given his heart to Christ because the miracle of her love and forgiveness had given him hope of a greater miracle and a greater love, that of God himself. She was released. She talks about how she was preaching one night on the grace and the love and the forgiveness of God. This was years later and she looked up and standing in the back of the room was a soldier from the camp that she was at. The man who had disrobed her and demeaned her and abused her. And after she was through teaching that night, he walked up to her and he held out his hand and he said, I wanna know and hear from you that you have forgiven me. And in her own words, she tells the story of how the flood of rage and anger and pain all came back in that moment. And she could not lift her hand. And she began to pray in her heart, God, I can't forgive him, but I think you can through me. I can lift my hand. That's what I can do. And I think if I will raise my hand, I'm gonna trust you to change my heart. And she raised her hand and her heart began to break and tears began to flow. And she said, I do forgive you. She said, forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Make the decision and your heart will catch up for he gives you the love he demands from you because forgiving is loving richly those who have loved you poorly. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. If you're here and you've never been forgiven, if you're not a follower of Jesus, the good news of Jesus and the cross and his resurrection is that no one has to remain unforgiven because there is nothing, there is nothing unforgivable. There is no sin unforgivable. There is no act unforgivable. Jesus said, I will not make you pay for what you have done wrong for I have paid the price for you to be forgiven. So receive that forgiveness full and free. I will release you and never hold it against you. It'll never be brought up to you. You can be forgiven fully, completely, freely, forever, today, right now. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, but you're holding on to something, unforgiveness, a hurt, a wound, a betrayal, for Christ's sake, today, let it go. Let it go. Let it go. You do what you can do. Regardless of the temperature of your heart, 
and you love and forgive, for he will give you the love that he demands from you. Let it go. And in doing so, set them free and you free as well. Because in Christ, nothing is unforgivable and no one is beyond forgiveness. Father, speak in our hearts. Do what only you can do.